This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. As the votes are tallied in the 2020 presidential election, all eyes are on the states where the race will be decided, and this time it's not Florida in the national spotlight. Despite a couple of minor technical glitches, including an internet outage at the Supervisor of Elections Office in Osceola County, the election appears to have run smoothly, and as Governor Ron DeSantis proclaimed, put to rest the ghost of the 2000 Bush v. Gore recount. Added to that, big turnout in Florida and other states across the country as people voted in big numbers in spite of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Well, today we're going to take a closer look at how those results matched up with polling, what this election tells us about the Sunshine State. You can call in with your questions and comments. We're at one 338 5252 That's 1-866-338-5252. You can also send us a tweet, your questions and comments, at WMFE Orlando. Well, joining us is UCF political science professor Aubrey Jewett. Aubrey, thanks for coming back. Oh, it's great to be here, Matthew. And WUSF political reporter Steve Newborn. Steve, thank you as well. Pleasure to be here, Matthew. Aubrey, I want to start with you. What do you make of turnout? I mean, Floridians really came out and voted in large numbers on Tuesday and all the way leading up to that. Yes, indeed. It's the highest turnout we've had since 1992. I think the last figure I saw was somewhere around 77, 78%, somewhere like that. Um, I think it's a testament to how engaged so many Floridians were with this election. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure that he drove, of course, many of his supporters to the polls and mobilized them. But, of course, he also (laughs) mobilized the opposition because so many Democrats, they turned out not because they were so crazy about Joe Biden, but because they really wanted to try to beat Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. What I mean, 77 percent, how does that compare to, say, you know, 2016 or even uh, 2012, do you know? Um, It's a little bit higher. I don't remember right off the top of my head Mm -hmm. uh, where we're at. Uh, I just know that uh, back in um, 1992, it was about 80%. That was one of the highest. That was the George uh, H.W. Bush versus uh, Bill Clinton. Mm -hmm. So we were... I don't think we were a sky high compared to uh, four years ago. My memory is that it was just a you know a couple percentage points higher because it was pretty high four years ago as well. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense, Aubrey, that turnout might have been higher without the pandemic, or when you factor in mail and uh, voting, does that kind of even things out a bit? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I, I, of course, you know the counterfactual. I, I think it's possible that we might have even seen higher turnout if the pan- if we were in an alternate world where the pandemic had not occurred. <laughs> but you never know, because that in itself became a huge issue that voters were uh, basing their decisions on, right? right. The re- Trump's response to the COVID pandemic. And, you know, as you point out, um, we sort of worked around it, and we had plenty of voters, um, lots and lots and lots of voters who requested mail ballots who had never done so before. So I tend to think that probably it's a wash, that we, we just ended up with really high turnout. It probably would have been high without it, but I'm not sure it would have been any higher. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Newborn, uh, just kind of thinking about the, the specter as um – as uh, Governor DeSantis put it, of the 2000 recount dangling chads and, and butterfly ballots. Um, it, were you anticipating maybe a little bit of that leading up to Tuesday? 
well, you know, no hanging chads and all that, thankfully, because we did away with that system years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, it's always in the back of people's heads. All right. So Florida, right. What are we going to mess up now? Who's going to screw up this ballot or that ballot? But I, I think to the credit of the state, the amount of early voting, the the push for early voting and the mail-in ballots especially, it got people really engaged early in the process and they had time to think about it. They weren't doing last-minute voting. So, uh, I mean, so much of this vote was counted, you know, weeks ago mm-hmm. before Election Day. And the supervisor of elections have three to four weeks in advance of the elections to start counting it. So I think that muted any kind of talk about us having these huge glitches and Run, you know, runs the ballot at the last minute. I think they were pretty prepared. And, uh, you know, Florida is looking really good for a change compared to a lot of the other states. So, uh, you know, kudos where it's deserved. Yeah, actually, Governor DeSantis made a comment like, you know, why can't uh, other states are looking at Florida and say, saying, why can't we be more like Florida? Is that maybe taking it a wee bit too far, do you think? Um, well, you know, we've been denigrated in the eyes of the entire world for so long. That, you know, we'll, we'll take it. Yep. You know, as far as us giving up the ghost of 2000, well, I think it's going to be like Marley's ghost. It's going to be the chains around our neck for the next couple of centuries when people think of Florida. But uh, we're making progress. Mm-hmm. Um, Brandon Elson uh, tweets, listener here, DeSantis is gloating on Florida's election going so smooth. I'd love for him to be able to gloat on how smooth the unemployment site ran or the food stamps or any other state ran assistance. Um, Aubrey, I mean, just to your point about what was getting people out to to vote uh, this year, all of those things are, are big, right? I mean, the, the catch cry back in uh, 1992, which James Carville coined was, it's the economy, stupid. It still is the economy, right? And people are still worried about that. They're worried about the coronavirus pandemic. They're concerned about things like, you know, is the where's the next paycheck going to come from? Um, so it's it doesn't end on November third or November sixth or seventh or whenever that this election may be called. Indeed, it it does not. And if you if you look at the exit polls for Florida, and dare I say, of course. The, the polling was so bad uh, across the country that maybe I shouldn't talk about exit polls. But um, if you look at the exit polls for Florida, the, the big issues for Florida voters were the economy and COVID-19 and health care. Those mm-hmm. were the three that were mentioned the most often. And for the eco- economic voters, they tended to back President Trump um, for People who were most concerned about COVID, and then in the exit poll even asked if you had a, a, a friend or relative or someone you knew who had died of COVID, um, those folks were very, very likely to vote for Biden. So mm-hmm. we did see a, a pretty big split on those uh, issues. But, yeah, the issues uh, remain in Florida, and, of course, this is a presidential race, and we, we uh, elected a new state legislature. And so when the legislature goes back to work here, in 2021, hopefully they'll work with the governor to resolve some of these uh, problems, in, including uh, some of the ones that you just mentioned from the tweet, mm-hmm. which are, are still out there. I mean, there's a lot of Floridians that are suffering. The economy's bounced back a little, but Florida still has very high unemployment compared to most states. And right here in central Florida, unfortunately, we still have some of the highest uh, unemployment rates of any counties in the state. Mm-hmm. Steve Newborn, you were out and about talking to voters uh, in the lead up to the election. What was the takeaway from you when it came to things like the pandemic? You know, whether it was deterring people from voting in person or something getting them out to the polls or, or the economy, those, those were those two things that came through with voters you spoke to? 
Yeah, like Aubrey was just saying, uh, it's it's kind of a wash. Um, you know, so many more people were motivated to vote because of the response that we've been seeing from the White House with the pandemic and heard from going to the polls. So mm-hmm. I think what you saw was this huge increase in mail-in ballots. Um, I think a lot more people were motivated to vote because you get it at home. I mean, I was getting questions from people like, who do I vote for for the soil and water conservation district? You know, right. Questions like that. And I couldn't answer that because I didn't know who to vote for personally. But anyway, it, it shows you that people were really vested in the process. Mm-hmm. And um, I was at the Pinellas uh, Supervisor of Elections Office, uh, Pinellas County on the West Coast uh, Tuesday. And um, I talked to the supervisor of elections. She said the turnout at the polls on Election Day was really low mm-hmm. because of that. But at the same time, there was a line around the building at five, six o'clock at night for people who had whatever wanted to get a uh, a duplicate. And so, you know, on the one hand, people are a lot more people are voting early, but didn't vote at the polls. And you got to wonder whether this trend is going to continue in the future, even after the pandemic. Or is early voting, mail-in voting going to be the, the way it mm-hmm. is from now on? If you're just joining us, you're listening to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. We're speaking with political reporter Steve Newborn from WUSF and political science professor Aubrey Jewett with UCF talking about the election result. Um, All eyes, of course, on Pennsylvania, Georgia and Nevada and um, those states where the election will be decided, not Florida this time. I want to hear from you. What is your takeaway from how Florida ran its election uh, Maybe thoughts on how the vote went. You can reach us at one eight six six three three eight five two five two. That's one eight six six three three eight five two five two. Send us a tweet. We're at WMFE Orlando. Uh, Steve, thinking about um, the direction things are going, or, or or some of the trends you're seeing, you took a look at how the votes sort of went across the state. Is Florida still a purple state? Do you think? Yeah, that's the big question. Um, we may not even be a swing state anymore. Uh, the, the one takeaway I got from this was that we're getting redder, obviously. Uh, you, if you take a look at the map of the Democratic vote margin from uh, from four years ago, and uh, I'm looking at a map that shows how much fewer votes the Democrats got than in 2016. And in the southeast corner of the state, in Miami-Dade, 205,000 fewer votes went for the Democrats this time than in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a reflection maybe of Trump's wooing of the Hispanic vote down there, you know, tarring him with that socialist, quote unquote, brush. Um, you know, a lot of people I talked to in the Hispanic community said that they were afraid that Joe Biden was going to bring back, you know, the horrors of socialism that they escaped from in the countries that they came here from. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think the big the big issue here is is the Democrats wooing of the Hispanic vote working? I mean, there was always such a big talk about the changing demographics in the country. Mm-hmm. The growing Hispanic vote was going to go blue. And we didn't see that, at least here in Florida. We didn't see that. Mm-hmm. So you got to wonder where the Democratic strategy is leaving, where the Democrat strategy is leading them. Yeah, indeed. And I think even when you drill down to, um, for example, if you're talking about Puerto Rican voters in central Florida, the assumption, especially uh, from you know pollsters, et cetera, it seems to be that, well, Puerto Ricans are reliably uh, going to vote Democrat usually, but 
I mean, you, you, there, there are plenty of conservative Puerto Ricans. Likewise, there are also, um, you know, liberal Cuban Americans who who would maybe vote be voting for Joe Biden over President Trump. So, uh, to your point, maybe some some uh, a deeper dive required there, at least from the Democratic Party. But clearly, uh, voters in the state uh, respond when when campaigns talk to them specifically. Aubrey, what's your takeaway on on sort of how that bro- vote broke down? If you look at some of the counties and how they went, and then thinking about the, the demographics as well. Yeah, and I just wanted to chime in on the on whether or not Florida's still, you know, a swing state. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is, and it, it, you know, we, of course, we may not be forever, and we have seen states changing. Uh, across the country as they get different people moving in and out of the state, demographics change, of course, the issues of the candidates change, and that sometimes uh, changes the way states vote. But, uh, you know, to pick up on what Steve was saying, uh, for people that now say that, uh, oh, Florida's red and it's it's now a conservative state, it's a red state, it's not purple anymore, I would say, well, you know, go back to the Barack Obama years. It was not that long ago when Barack Obama won the state by three points the first time, and then it was especially after he got reelected and won Florida the second time by by one percent. And you looked at the surging registration numbers for Democrats because Republicans back before Barack Obama had pulled it within two or three points, and at the height of Obama's popularity, Democrats were back up by six percentage points statewide. Mm-hmm. So I just bring all that up to say it wasn't that long ago, and Steve alluded to this, that people were talking about Florida that maybe was going to be blue, mm-hmm. that you know, demography is destiny, and as Florida got more diverse, more people of color, more Hispanics, more African Americans, more Caribbean blacks, more Asian population, it was going to be blue, and it wouldn't be competitive anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, then, of course... President Trump came along and, and, um, and sort of changed that dynamic. And so I guess I just say, you know, over the longer sweep of the last 20 years, we have been at the top of the, t- at the state in statewide races. We really have been a, a competitive swing state. And for Democrats, you know, I can understand, particularly in, in, in the aftermath of one more election where you fell short just one more time. Right. It's like, how many times are we going to come close and fall short? Mm-hmm. You would sort of begin to feel hopeless, like, oh, it's a. It's just a red state. We have no choice or no chance. But um, in my perspective, I think they still do. Maybe I'll be wrong and we'll find out. A few more elections, if it's all red, I'll say, okay, yeah, I agree. We're not purple anymore. But I I think it would be premature to declare Florida's competitive swing state status over as of now. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, what are your thoughts on whether Florida is a purple state or a blue or red state or how things may go next time around, either in the next two years or four years, you can call in and weigh in with your questions and comments, one 338 5252 You can also send us a tweet at WMFE Orlando. Steve, um, in spite of the fact that the, that the president won re-election with a pretty handy margin this time, uh, there, there were some blue pockets, right? I mean, in the I-4 corridor in particular, in particular, uh, voters in, in that area um, tending to vote uh, for Joe Biden. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, is the I-4 corridor still kind of like the key to the state? Yeah, that right now, uh, like Aubrey was saying, uh, things are so fluid right now. But if uh, you know, if you look at the map of the I-4 corridor in the election, there's blue blobs everywhere. The, mm-hmm. the major counties in the region, uh, Hillsborough, Orange, Osceola, and even Pinellas this time went for Biden. 
Now, uh, Pinellas is kind of a bell- bellwether state. I'm going back there because I was I was there during the, uh, the election night. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pinellas has voted for the, pre- the the winning presidential candidate for the last 20 years. And they voted for Biden. A uh, thousand votes was, hmm. was the, the measure there. It wasn't much, right? Right. So the I-4 corridor is pretty reliably blue. But if you look north and south, it's still heavily Trump territory. Uh, I mean, that's probably still where the, the state elections are going to be decided. Mm-hmm. Is, I mean, that notion of bellwether states, does that still hold true, do you think, Steve, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, whether a state can kind of tell you roughly how a, how the I mean, a county rather can tell you how a state is going or sort of building that out to the bigger picture of how the, the country is going? Yeah, I mean, you could just rely on statistics, and you know what they say about statistics, right? So um, it, it's been true in Pinella's case <laughs> for the last 20 years. Whether it will be true again, even in this election, well, it's looking like it, but we don't exactly know who's going to win. So mm-hmm. it, it might, I mean, Pinella's may actually have picked the presidential winner again. So if, if Biden wins, um, yeah, we'll... Uh, We'll go back there again in four years. Right. And I guess we, we may know that today. It may, we may take a little bit longer to, to know who is the winner there. Getting a call come in uh, from David. Um, hello, David, are you there? Yes, I am. Can yes. you hear me? Yes. Uh, so, David, you're, you're calling from Orlando. What are you thinking about as you kind of look at the way the results played out there in Florida? Well, you were talking earlier about whether or not uh, Florida is a purple state or not. And I would just um, counter the argument that uh, we're purple with the fact that we've had um, uh, Republican governors now for uh, two terms of Jeb Bush, two terms of Rick Scott, mm-hmm. one ter- uh, term of uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, we have two Republican senators. And I think you could say at this point, Florida is a pre- pretty re- uh, re- uh, pretty dependable red state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting point. Um, and I guess we saw that sort of play out too in some of the, uh, the, the the state races there. The Democrats hoping to pick up some some uh, some seats in the state legislature that didn't work out so well. David, thank you so much for your call. Um, thank I, you. I appreciate that. Um, so let me throw that back to you, Aubrey. Um, I, I find it interesting that although. Uh, Florida went for the Republican candidate, um, and and we saw the Republicans sort of gain some ground in the legislature. Floridians also voted for things like a fifteen dollar minimum wage. So, what's going on there? <laughs> well, I think it's a couple of things. One, there's some compartmentalization when people vote. You know, on the one hand, they're looking at specific races and choices between candidates, and then on the other, they're being asked to make a decision about public policy, in this case, whether or not to you know, raise the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that sort of explained the difference. Um, I, I am sure that it was certainly the minimum wage amendment was certainly supported more by Democrats and Republicans. But you certainly could find some Republicans that were uh, in favor of it. And the same thing with, say, the NPA, the no party affiliation voters, um, probably some of those folks who voted Republican also split their ticket and, and said, no, but we do support this minimum wage increase. So some of it is, again, just sort of the compartmentalization and just the way people um, approach and think about different issues and candidates and how they vote. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, and I just if I could just jump back to the caller, sure. I mean, I don't disagree with the caller in terms of results. Um, you know, if, if you just look at who's who's won, then, yeah, you would say at the, even at the top of the, uh, the ticket, uh, Florida has become uh, a, a red state. But from my perspective, it is um, 
it more important to look at, you know, what, were those elections competitive and could the Democrats have won and might they win in the near future? And to those things, I say, well, look, you know, Rick Scott, again, sort of a different kind of uh, candidate came from an outsider, mm-hmm. was able to self-fund, and he was able to win twice, but by like 1% each right. time, right? I mean, and, and then two years ago, we had three statewide elections that went to recount. Mm-hmm. Democrats won sort of a lower profile one of one of those, the um, agriculture commissioner race, but just lost by, a you know, a whisker for governor and U.S. senator. And in fact, if they had um, used a different ballot design down in Palm Beach <laughs> when they, uh, when they, um, uh, created their ballot, uh, Nelson might have still been the winner today. I don't mm-hmm. know. So I guess that's, it's just a different. I don't disagree with the caller. Certainly, if you look at who's won, you, you certainly can make the argument that Florida is now now red. But if you look in terms of how competitive these elections are, and particularly, I think looking forward, could Democrats be competitive and win? I think the answer is yes. Changing mm-hmm. conditions, right candidate. Uh, you might see a surge in Democratic registration again, and those demographic changes we were talking about, you know, those are all unknowable. But I, I think at least for this minute, I think, it, you know, Democrats don't have to throw up their hands in despair. I'm not a Democrat, by the way. You know, I'm a no-party affiliation, but I, I just think um, that you can you can certainly still make the argument that we're at least competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve Newborn, I just wanted to turn it back to you for a moment and, and think about polling and also the approach to reporting on this election. You were the lead political reporter for WUSF in the I-4 votes, the state we're in project, and that was a partnership between WMFE and WUSF. Sort of reporting this election a little bit differently from previously, taking into consideration the fact that you know polling was kind of way off in 2016 and even again to some degree, in 2020. Um, what do you take away from sort of trying to tackle this election differently and report it differently and spend more time talking to voters rather than sort of following the candidates? Right. Well, yeah, you hit the nail head on there with uh, with the, the, um, the polling. I mean, the polls had Joe Biden up by 13 percent here at one time. And that narrowed as the election got closer. Right. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can't, you can't trust the polls anymore. Either people are harder to reach because of their reliance on social media, nobody has landlines anymore, that sort of thing, or they're just reticent to really reveal who they're going to vote for. So uh, what we did is instead of looking at the horse race, who's leading now in the polls, like everybody does nationwide, we decided to talk to the voters. So um, we had a group of reporters from WUSF in Tampa and WMFE, and we went out and talked to people. Yeah, wow, amazing, right? Uh, (laughs) This is before the pandemic. So we could right. actually do that. Right. And uh, we went to a lot of events. We passed out uh, uh, brochures. We had them fill out questionnaires. We did we did our own survey and the survey overwhelmingly said. Now, remember, this is before the pandemic hit the economy, health care, things like transportation, climate change were at the top of their list. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, transportation, climate change kind of nosedived a little bit. Um, you know, with the with the pandemic, but um, you know, the economy and healthcare were at the top of people's lists. Mm-hmm. Also, um, it was nice that we were able to just talk to people unvarnished. Didn't ask them who they were going to vote for. Just what are the issues that really appealed to you? And uh, yeah, that was kind of enlightening. So uh, I'm looking forward to doing that for years. Well, you're listening to Intersection on 90.7 News, and we're speaking with WUSF political reporter Steve Newborn. Steve, uh, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for your reporting. My pleasure, Matthew.
We're also with political science professor Aubrey Jewett. Aubrey, stay on the line. Uh, We'll be right back with more election analysis, and you can call in with your questions and comments as well. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Today we're taking a closer look at how the election results matched up with the polling, what this election tells us about the Sunshine State. You can call in with your questions and comments. We're at one eight six six three three eight five two five two. You can send us a tweet at WMFE Orlando. Joining us is WUCF political science professor Aubrey Jewett. And also later this hour we'll check in with law professor Chara Torres-Spellacy about how the vote count is playing out. Have a call coming in now from Bill in Orlando. Bill, you're on the air. What's on your mind thinking about this election? Yeah, the election, you were talking about the, the red, blue, purple conversation. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, a conversation I had recently was uh, someone pointing out how with the amendments, minimum wage, voter rest- restoration rights, that's kind of a blue vote yep. where it also we're sending red representatives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think tailing on to that with the voter restoration that the voters wanted for the felons, the red representatives then went and suppressed the vote. Mm-hmm. And that's the discussion I'd like the panel to, to have. Well, thanks for your call, Bill. Appreciate that. Um, I'm going to turn that over to you, Aubrey. Uh, just the, that that split we were talking about before the break as well, um, and the caller pointing out that amendments kind of really hitting to some of those, the heart of some of those issues, people really seem to be in favour of those. Uh, and also casting back to the uh, restoration for the voting rights of people who've served felony sentences, um, it, it, how do you, how do you see that sort of playing out? I mean, we saw, we saw that minimum wage uh, amendment passing. Um, I'm wondering though if there may be some some kind of uh, discussion around how that amendment actually gets enacted, given the way you know amendments in the past have been voted on, and then the, the actual you know implementation of those amendments doesn't always match up with what you think or what voters may think they are voting for. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. Well, just to, just to follow up on that a little bit, um, when you make policy through constitutional amendment, it is sort of a clunky uh, process. And when you pass something, it's not, all, as you just pointed out, and as a caller pointed out, it's not always implemented like you think. And in the, in the case of both of those issues, the felon uh, restoration issue, felon voting rights restoration issue, and minimum wage, again, I think it gets back to what is Florida's political culture, more than just is it red, blue, purple. Mm-hmm. But um, what, I describe it in our uh, book, my book, Politics in Florida, as, you know, we are certainly conservative in some ways, like we're pretty anti-tax in this state, maybe more so than other states because mm-hmm. of the senior population and others. But on the other hand, we are more moderate in some ways, and we have certainly voted to give, try to give people um, more opportunity and equal opportunities. And, and I think that minimum wage vote and the felon restoration vote, you know, both speak to that. Mm-hmm. And, and finally, I guess the last thing, you know, in terms of the legislature, um, you know, there's no question in my mind uh, underneath the, um, um, the felon voting restorations rights, there's, a, there's definitely a partisan uh, split. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Republicans, you know, went to court to try to uh, enforce the fact that they said that people had to pay fine fees and restitution. 
And um, I, I will say sort of, on, sort of on the legal side, although I think my colleague is better at this than I, um, the, the, when the Florida Supreme Court was looking at this, whether or not to allow it on the ballot, the, one of the main lawyers who was trying to get it on the ballot did say that all terms of sentence would include that, you know, that money. So that, right. that did give those Republicans. But I, I have no doubt that at least, at least some, if not most, of their motive was to reduce the number of people who could get their rights back because they worry, because some, some, there is some evidence to suggest that um, among uh, felons and former felons, more would register and vote Democratic than Republican. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure that this was, you know, part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. And last thing I'll say, just to tie it all together, I think, is you could still argue, yes, yeah, Florida, a purple, red, blue, purple state at the top. Well, you know, we still have a, you know, potentially like a million felons or more who haven't regained their rights, and, and maybe if all of those folks or mo- most of those folks registered and voted, um, you know, f- f- the, the Democratic side might win a few of these close elections, perhaps. Mm-hmm. It's been hard to say, but maybe. Right, right. Well, uh, this is probably a good time to bring in Chara Torres-Spellacy. Uh, she's a professor of law at Stetson College of Law. She specializes in election law and campaign finance law. Chara, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. So we spoke last week about the prospects of lawsuits in Florida post-election, and I a sense there was a little bit of anxiety on your part, sort of thinking, well, I hope we aren't sort of facing a 2000 Bush v. Gore recount situation. First of all, your, your takeaway, how do you think things went? Um, with the exception undelivered mail ballots, mm-hmm. I think you can put on the post office and not on either voters or the voter administra- administrators in Florida. It was a pretty smooth election in Florida, which I'm glad that we are not within the half a percent that would have triggered a manual recount and mm-hmm. probably enormous acrimony. Yep. And so I, I think we are in some ways ahead of the curve. Florida counted its mail-in ballot so early, which allowed us to report our results actually on Election Day. Yes, Um Okay, well, sort of thinking about what's happening in in other states, I mean, particularly Pennsylvania, the president sort of signaled ahead of the election that that, uh, he would be, um, you know, raising questions about the vote count, even though we knew ahead of time that they have to wait until, uh, you know, a day of election to start counting those mail-in ballots. Um, Some thoughts about what we're seeing playing out there with people turning up to the counting sites and protesting, essentially? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a limited utility in protesting people who are counting ballots. They're just doing their job, and we need them to do their job, that we have an accurate sense of who won in each state, which then leads to who wins the Electoral College votes from each state, because it's the Electoral College which meets in mid-December, which will ultimately choose the next president. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Got a call now coming in from Mario. Uh, Mario is in Orlando. Uh, Mario, some thoughts on what we saw on Tuesday and leading up to then? Yeah, so first I, I think, uh, let me just say this. Um, first of all, it's, it's important to note that I'm a, a originally from Miami. I now live in Orlando. I'm a born and raised Floridian, 63 years old, who comes from Cuban parents. Mm-hmm. My parents came pre-Castro, so I, I, I can tell you I'm a re, I'm a registered Democrat. I can tell you that a lot of the individuals who have made 
predictions one way or the other or have stated whether we're a red state or a blue state may not really know the history mm-hmm. of the state, but the history of the state has changed from red to blue to red to blue. That's That's been going on for for decades. There's no reason why it can't change again. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason that there are so many red districts right now is because of the legislature. That's the way they cut up Florida. Mm-hmm. That happened years ago. And because they've stayed in power, they, they continue to maintain that. Uh, the previous uh, governor that we had, and, and then with DeSantis also uh, placing mostly conservative uh, judges in positions uh, in the Supreme Court, that's also going to help us stay as a red state. That being said, again, if you go by history, there's no reason why that can't change back to blue. Mm-hmm. Also, one of your colleagues, one of the uh, um, individuals who spoke earlier made a good point because of the legislature also trying to prevent uh, ex-felons from voting, and that uh, that didn't occur or is, isn't going to occur. It's, it's, it, 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 a lot of these ex-felons probably are going to vote Democrat, so that's going to help change things back to blue. So there's there's a, there's a lot of points that have to be taken in consideration. Mm-hmm. There's also um, you're, you're one of these speakers also mentioned that one of the reasons that we are uh, that the seniors have voted the way that they do it, it has to do because of um, because they are seniors and because of their ages. Well, again, if you look at some of the backgrounds, particularly coming from Miami Beach. A lot of them have been Democrat. A lot of the Central Florida ones have been more Republican. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, what I'm saying is at this stage, things are, there's no reason why things can't change. They always do. Mm-hmm. So it looks like more of a purple state. Mario, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you real quick, what do you make of the kind of debate, the post-mortem, I guess, after this election about the uh, Latino vote and sort of considerations about how to reach different pockets of voters there? Yeah, so I, th- I think the general perception now, and, and I'm glad that it's actually starting to sink in, because you because you come from a, a Cuban background doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be of the same thought of mind as someone who's coming from a, a Mexican background or, or Venezuelan or, mm-hmm. or Colombian or Puerto Rican. So there are changes. There are differences. If you look at South Florida, Yes, many of the Cubans, uh, of the older Cubans, do vote Republican because it's been instilled in their mind that Democrats are communists. They, they don't quite understand that because you're a Democrat, you're not a communist. But that's, that's because that's what's been instilled in their mind by the Republican politicians for, for decades, by people like Diaz Gallard mm-hmm. uh, and others in South Florida that have place that in their minds because it helps them it helps it it helps their power and it gives them more power to their power base so their their children are better educated than them so i expect that they will start seeing uh these elections for what they are in other words these children and these and when i say children i'm talking about uh uh, younger people that are now in their 20s uh they're they're they understand that because you're a Democrat doesn't make you a communist and that communism has nothing to do with, with uh, 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 being a Democrat. Mm. They, they also understand that 
and I, this would be a completely different conversation, but right. they also understand that um, the fall of Cuba had nothing to do with Democrats either. It had nothing to do with Kennedy. It had nothing to do with with with, with what uh, with how the U.S. didn't get involved hmm. uh, in the early '60s. It, it had everything to do with Cuba uh, and their own errors and their own mistakes and. And their own ignorance. But mm. again, that's another conversation. Yes, a pretty complex one too. Mario, thank you so much for your call. Do appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that Mario was talking about, which is the issue of uh, you know former felons and their voting rights. Um, Chara, is this a, a kind of narrative that you've been following closely? And I'm, I'm wondering kind of how you see that playing out because you know there's still some some kind of legal wrangling over that, isn't there? Yeah, I think we're going to have uh, fights over having their rights restored under Florida's Amendment 4 mm-hmm. and the then narrowing legislation out of Tallahassee, which required ex-felons to pay their fees and fines before they could get their full voting rights restored. So that has gone sort of up and down the federal court system uh, with a recent uh, decision by the 11th Circuit on Bonk allowing for that legislation to be implemented. But I still think there's a lot of room for improvement for the state of Florida in terms of if you're going to require people to pay fees and fines, then you need to set up a functioning database that will reliably report to ex-felons exactly how much they owe. It it seems like it is putting people in a catch-22 where they are risking uh, violating a different law to exercise the right to vote. Yes, indeed. Well, you're listening to Intersection on 90.7 News. We're talking with Setson University College of Law Professor Chara Torres-Spellacy. Chara, please stay on the line. We're also with Professor Aubrey Jewett. He's Professor of Political Science at UCF. Stay with us. Back with more election analysis uh, after this. You're listening to Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Today we're taking a closer look at how the results matched up with the polling and what this election tells us about the Sunshine State. You can call in with your questions, one 338 5252 Send us a tweet at WMFE Orlando. We're with UCF political science professor Aubrey Jewett and Stetson University College of Law professor Chara Torres-Spellacy talking about how that vote count is playing out and other things looking back at the 2020 presidential election. Uh, Aubrey, our caller from earlier who had sort of moved up from South Florida was talking about some of the nuances in the um, in the vote there, particularly, uh, you know, when you talk about the Latino vote. Um, it's, it's a complex place to campaign, obviously. Uh, do you see campaigns taking much out of the 2020 election and changing significantly how they go about trying to get those votes? Well, if if they're smart, they will, <laughs> because clearly, you know, Donald Trump and the and the Republican Party uh, really did something amazing in South Florida in terms of turning out voters. And again, if you look at the difference between 2016 and 2020 in Miami-Dade, Donald Trump was able to get about 200,000 more votes, but most of them were from Hispanics. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the lesson to learn is, you know, you've got to craft a message that is effective as a campaign, 
But then also you've got to get the vote out. You've got to mobilize voters. And Republicans have been doing this for months. Despite the, the COVID-19 pandemic, they were still knocking on doors, including tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of doors in South Florida. And political analysts and observers saw this coming, uh, including a lot of Democrats who were from Florida because they were saying, you know, hey, Biden campaign, you're getting killed down here. You need to do this. But mm-hmm. the, the Biden campaign had made the decision because of COVID not to do door to door until the last few weeks. And by then it was a little uh, too little too late. Right. So I guess bottom line, yeah, going forward. Absolutely. This, again, shows that, um, you know, the electorate is changeable. There's also people in the electorate that don't always vote, that maybe sometimes you can mobilize to vote. In this case, it was Hispanics. But as the other caller mentioned, you know, looking through Florida's history, even just in the last 10 or 20 years, mm-hmm. um, there are all sorts of different swings by different demographic groups. And it's, and it's up to the parties to figure out what's the important issues and what's the, what's the good positive message or and sometimes a scary message about the other side that I can use to get these voters to vote. Mm-hmm. Got a call coming in from Cliff. Um, Cliff from Orlando, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Uh, good afternoon, Matt. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I remember the uh, the fiasco of uh, hanging chads ever in 2000. Mm-hmm. One thing I have to say I'm very impressed with this time was how well Florida handled the, the system in getting everything counted and the results delivered on election night. Mm-hmm. My question is... Uh, is the process that Florida used published as a best practice that could be shared with the other states, most notably those who are in such a mess at the moment trying to count everything? Right. A good question. Thank you so much, Cliff. Appreciate that. Um, I want to put that to you, Aubrey. I mean, is it the fact that the other states are in a mess or is it just that every state has the right to decide kind of how to, how to go about tallying up those votes? Well, there's, there's one part of me that desperately wants to say, given Florida's record, that other states are really a mess. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really want to say that because we've been on the receiving end of slings and arrows so many times, but sometimes deservedly, I might add. Um, but, yeah, the bottom line is election administration is a function of the states. There's mm-hmm. a few uh, laws and rules, constitutional laws, federal laws. Um, they sort of govern and guide it, but primarily it is still a function of state and then local government administration. And I do think that states certainly look to each other and talk to each other, and I really do believe that Florida will be held up as a model on some things about how to uh, count and cast accurately with the the mail ballots in particular. Mm -hmm. I I will say, you know, a number of states were, were trying to go on the fly on this because they didn't have Florida's history of using mail ballots. Mm -hmm. And of course, they didn't have Florida's scarring history from the 2000 election, which has really driven uh, election reform in this state now for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of states, I think, did make some changes and were pretty good. But there was a a handful of states that, um, and I'll take Pennsylvania as my, my biggest example. They had a Republican legislature and a Democratic governor, and they tried to come to an agreement uh, before the election to allow some of those ballots to be counted early, and it all bogged down in partisanship because the Republican legislature wanted to add a few other things to the bill that the Democratic governor thought might hurt Democratic chances, and so mm-hmm. he didn't want to sign what they put it. So it really, for Pennsylvania's case, it was sort of uh, you know willful partisanship and the inability for them to 
come together and make a decision that caused them to be so far behind mm-hmm. in counting ballots. Um, it's prof- not that they, I guess my point is it's not that they didn't know that it was a good right. idea to count ahead of time. They just couldn't come to an agreement to change the existing law, so they didn't. Sure, sure. So some partisanship there. Uh, we'll take one more call here from uh, Az- Azanta. Azanta, I, ho- I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Uh, what's going through your mind in the last minute or so we have here thinking about the way this election has played out? Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. It's Zanta calling from Volusia County. Um, it's uh, it's very, very red out here, and I wasn't very surprised by the election results. Um, being a Muslim from um, uh, Volusia County, it's, it's, it was not surprising to me. And I was just wondering what the two panelists thought about the, um, the role of COVID-19 in the election and the voting results in Florida, if it had a role at all. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for that. Um, Professor Spalacy, real quick, what do you think about that? How, how significant has has uh, COVID been in this election? COVID it, it itself has become partisan. So you have uh, Democrats who try to uh, adhere to the CDC requirements, you know, six feet of distance, wearing masks, and you have Republicans who do the exact opposite. Hmm. So I think in the same state that has you know over three-quarters of a million cases of COVID, to me, that's not surprising that it would vote for Trump. Hmm. Uh, and let me put that question to you, Aubrey. I know we talked about it earlier in the show, but um, your thoughts on uh, well, the, the impact, I guess, on the election and perhaps just the way it was conducted? Yeah, I, I think COVID-19 had some big impacts on this election. Uh, first, just as an issue itself, whether or not voters thought that President Trump was doing a good job fighting COVID. I mean, that that was a big part of uh, the vote this time around. And it certainly impacted the way the campaigns were run. As my uh, as my colleague was just talking about, you know, with Republicans and and Donald Trump in the end, just going ahead full steam with rallies with no mask and everything else. I I was asked earlier, uh, like a a couple of months back, you know, if if they would do that. And I said, no, I don't think so. But, you know, he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it really impacted on the on the Biden side, though. They did not do those kinds of things. And so it impacted the way the candidates were able to campaign. They were off the trail for months, in fact. And then, um, of course, it also uh, impacted um, ultimately the way people actually voted because we just ended up with enormous numbers of people in Florida and, and throughout the country voting by mail that had not ordinarily done so. But, uh, again, a partisan uh, split there as well, because so many Democrats in particular are taking advantage of that, but so many Republicans heeding President Trump's words and going to vote in person and not by mail. So, yeah, it affected it in, in at least two or three different ways, big ways. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, we're still, I guess, waiting on the the uh, final votes to be tallied up and uh, see whether this election, this presidential election, will actually be called today. Expecting some updates, of course, from Pennsylvania, Arizona and uh, Georgia as the day progresses. And we'll bring you those results um, and those calls as they happen here on WMFE. You've been listening to Intersection. I've been speaking with Aubrey Jewett. He's a professor of political science at the University of Central Florida. Uh, Professor Jewett, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Also been speaking with Chara Torres-Spellacy, professor of law at Stetson University College of Law. Uh, Professor Torres-Spellacy, thank you as well. Uh, Thank you, and sorry for the beeps. That's okay. Support for Intersection (laughs) comes from Advent Health and from our listeners... 
<laughs> Production assistance for today's show from Bill Johnson and Danielle Pryor. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived episodes on our website, wmfe.org intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.